This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Affirm Films' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick Brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters September 10th. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us. Pro-life activists have been fighting for decades now to try to convince abortion-supporting Americans of the sanctity of human life and to expose the evils of the abortion industry. But while the fundamental arguments in defense of the unborn never change, some of the ways that we engage our opponents about abortion do need to change for a variety of reasons. And we're going to talk about this today with Sean Carney, co-founder, president, and CEO of 40 Days for Life, who is out with a new book with Steve Carlin called What? What to Say When, The Complete New Guide to Discussing Abortion. Sean, welcome. It's wonderful to have you with us. Glad to be on. How are you today? Doing just great. I hope you are, too. So you say the landscape on abortion isn't about religion versus freedom anymore, which is a good observation. Now you say it's about science versus emotion. Explain that shift. What's going on? It is. I mean, there's been a huge shift in our country as we we see an exodus out of the abortion uh, industry. For those who work in it, we see so many, you know, millions of women who regret their abortion. And as Sandra Day O'Connor said, Roe v. Wade is is on a collision course with itself. And and she was referring to the the scientific developments of the unborn, where we're now schizophrenic, where we'll do, you know, surgery on an unborn uh, child miraculously at, at 20 weeks or 22 weeks. And we could take that same baby on the different floor of the hospital and, and, and have it aborted in a barbaric fashion. And so, uh, you know, we, we've been living in this uh, strange time where it used to be you're ju- you just believe life begins at conception you believe in Jesus and God and all of those nice things, but you need to leave medicine to us. Yeah. And it's been quite the opposite. You, you need more faith now uh, to believe in abortion. Well, how would you say the pro-abortion crowd has adapted to all of the scientific discoveries, the 4D images coming out of ultrasounds, and all of the growing body of proof that this is a child and obviously it's immoral to kill a child? How are, how are they dealing with that evidence that's coming out every single day? That's a, that's a great question, and, and people are surprised at my answer. They they are ignoring it by getting louder <laughs> and and weirder, and so that's why you see you know Bill Clinton coined, you know coined the phrase safe, legal, and rare when he went from being a pro life Arkansas governor to a pro abortion presidential candidate, and that was brilliant, right? We all want it safe, we all want it rare, but of course it's got to be legal, and he had all these hesitations, and this is difficult. That's gone. I mean, Governor Cuomo is smiling, lighting up the Empire State Building as he he enacts, you know, and enables uh, 40 week abortions and and, and infanticide when a baby survives an abortion. So the abortion industry has gotten uh, bizarre. I mean, through infanticide, taxpayer funded uh, abortion, abortion on demand. Um, Planned Parenthood getting into the transgendered abortion so they can do abortions on, on transgendered men. Ugh. And a lot of just your sort of typical passive pro-choice people are, are looking back going, 
this is getting a little weird. And, and yeah. you know, I, I don't want a 38-week-old baby to, to die. You know, I don't I don't think we should have an abortion at 40 weeks or, or deny medical care to a baby girl who survives an abortion. So this is a great advantage uh, for the pro-life person. One of the reasons we wrote what to say when, because it comes up now more than ever. And we don't have an argument problem or even a, a love problem. Right. Um, we, we sometimes have a confidence problem with uh, when abortion comes up. So we. This is an easy-to-use book that tells you what to say and what not to say. Well, yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up what happened in New York and the lighting up of what was it, the Empire State Building when that draconian law passed. Illinois has a similar law, obviously, just completely evil. It's almost like they're desperate to be evil at this point. We want to abort just because we can. We don't want to hear any evidence that would persuade us otherwise. There seems to be that digging in in some cases. People just want it legal, and they don't want to hear anything that would counter that that position. And that's truly weird, as you said. For sure. For sure. And, and they, they dig in. That's why we had the shout your abortion. Uh, you know, Planned Parenthood fired a CEO and I think it was 2005, 2006, because she promoted the I had an abortion t-shirt, huh. which thank God was not a bestseller. And, and, you know, now how times have changed just in, in 15 or 20 years. Now they're, they're embracing this shout your abortion and, and, and taxpayer-funded abortions. And so it's, it, it, it's great because it gives so much attention to the abortion issue. We haven't gotten over this since 1973. It still bothers us uh, more than ever. But, but we need to know also that our laws are, are very rare in the United States. I mean, we are in a very small and shameful category with only Canada, Vietnam, North Korea, and China for when we can have an abortion. You could take 90% of Europe, countries in Europe, and if you place them in the United States, they would be the most conservative pro-life state in the union. Wow. That says something, doesn't it? So when you are talking about what to say when, I like your line in the book that says life doesn't need defending, but abortion does. And you are advising pro-lifers to go on the offense. What is the best approach for going on the offense? Yeah, the best approach is to is for abortion to come up and then to listen. You know, we don't just give you arguments because the book is is meant to balance winning arguments versus converting hearts. And and we've helped convert a lot of hearts, uh, you know, around the world through 40 Days for Life. And so you need to listen and you need to ask questions. And when you do that, you know, and we give you the specific questions to ask and not interrupt their answers, but allow the abortion advocate has most of the time never considered abortion, never talked about abortion, never thought why they believe it. They just sort of, you know, I would never have one, but if you want to, sure, you be you. And when you start asking questions, one of them is, what is an abortion? I mean, what happens? (laughs) And, And we can ask those questions and and take people through and and we give you the approaches to to use and when to when to go in the certain areas when to discuss politics how to discuss politics but um it it really is a, a powerful tool because i mean i've talked to planned parenthood workers who said i just never thought about abortion i just knew i believed in women's rights Ugh. and you know and that's it, we give there is a huge problem in that Nowadays, you can respect and love someone without respecting 
their insane belief about something. Right. And so, you know, you, you can't you can't just sit down and, and have this sort of false security that, well, because I, I respect their their view, uh, which is not worthy of respect, uh, then then somehow I'm respecting them. And and you, you we really don't have to do that. And we we kind of, you know, give the approaches to, to help guide a conversation and to go on offense. Sean, do you often find pro-abortion supporters who don't actually have an answer when you ask what is an abortion? Or do they say simplified things like, well, it's when the cells are removed? I mean, what sorts of answers have you heard people give who truly can't describe what an abortion is? <laughs> so that's a great question, because what they say is, it is a legal right in America. And, and you say, no, 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 I, I know that, you know, I, 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 you know, I know that we're, we're, we're supposed to stop at stop signs, but, but what does that mean? Like, how do you stop a car, yeah. you know? Yeah. And all of us would be able to say you two hands on the wheel and you apply the brake and you get all the way to the line and you need a rock back to come to a complete stop. And that would be the end of it. But when you, there everywhere, you know, whether it's your aunt or your cousin, when somebody's getting surgery in your family, whether you want them or not, you get all the details, right? That's oh, what yeah. they're going to do to Aunt Edna's <laughs> kidney. Yes. And, and you get all these details. That doesn't happen with abortion. Abortion is the only surgery, the most common in America, where we don't know the details. We don't want the details. We blindly support it. And we're actually uncomfortable discussing it. It's not a miraculous thing that enhances life like every other surgery. It, it doesn't rip and tear to heal. Uh, it rips and tears to kill. Ugh. And that you just have to, they're immediately going to say, well, it's a legal right under the Constitution. Uh, but you can say, I, I get all that, but what, like, what actually happens? I mean, how do yeah. they do it? You're right, Sean. Hang on, we got to pause for a break. What to say when Sean Carney from 40 Days for Life will come back after this. Stay with us. From Affirm Films comes the Kendrick Brothers' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous take moviegoers on a cinematic journey that invites you to think differently about your earthly father and how you relate to God through five true stories. I'm stunned. He's real. He's really out there. And this is really him. This is really him. Show Me the Father. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theater September 10th. More information is available at showmethefathermovie.com. Hi, I'm Kevin Sorbo. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the Ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. Now get ready to write down the phone number and the website so you can join the Preborn team. Join Kevin Sorbo and me, Janet Mefford, as we support Preborn. The mission at Preborn is to supply pregnancy centers throughout America with sonograms. Ultrasounds are a game changer when it comes to saving babies' lives. You see, when an abortion-minded woman sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to keep her baby. Your gift of $140 will cover the cost of five ultrasounds. All donations are tax deductible. You can help save a baby's life by donating to Preborn. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you along and great to have with us Sean Carney, co-founder, president and CEO of 40 Days for Life. He and Steve Carlin are out with a great new book, What to Say When, the complete new guide to discussing abortion, how to change minds and convert hearts in a brave new world. Boy, that's what we're living in, Sean, for sure. Now, something else you address in your book, we were talking about going on the offense, how important it is to understand that life doesn't need defending, but abortion does. So putting out some of these important questions to pro-abortion supporters is very important. What should we avoid saying? This is something else that you mentioned. There are a lot of cliched lines that you mention in here, like uh, the baby could become the next, maybe George Washington and don't kill the baby because George Washington is in your womb, things like that. What sorts of things do you advise people to stay away from saying to a pro-abortion supporter? Yeah, that's great. I'll address that one now because we, we, Beethoven's the most famous. He had everything in the world wrong with him and his mother chose life. And now we have Beethoven. And those, those are fun stories. They're sensational stories. You know, when you look at the people who were adopted, well, what if they were aborted? Um, but in, in day-to-day conversation, it, it's not that effective because we're kind of passively stripping dignity away from the baby. I mean, your kid doesn't have to be Beethoven or cure cancer or be president of the United States to deserve a chance at life in the United States of America. Right. Uh, we don't get our dignity based on a potential resume we may build in our career or accomplishments that, that we will, uh, that we'll achieve. Um, we simply are. And once we exist, we, we have our dignity. And so once you go down that line, you're talking about the value of that person. And we don't start by justifying the value. We, we, we assume that it's already there, as with every human being who's, who's on earth. Um, and, and I've been in scenarios where, you know, you're, you're with a mother and her kid's a drug addict. And, you know, he's just, you're sitting there going, well, I mean, what about my kid? Was he not worthy of life because he's not Beethoven? I, I considered an abortion. Um, and so, so that's one of the things to avoid. It's kind of an endless thing. Those stories can be powerful. But it's not something in day-to-day conversation you want to say, you know, uh, right off the bat. Um, you know, the other thing is we are so tempted. We immediately go into the humanity of the baby, which is key to all. If it's not a baby, then you don't need an abortion. And if it's not a baby, we all need to be quiet and go away and right. stop writing books about it. Right. But when you get into the humanity of the baby, the worst thing to say is that we believe life begins at conception. And we point out in the book a lot of humans had that. They, they had to believe it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our ancestors and, and many people who, who went before us, before the modern era. Uh, but we don't believe it anymore. We know it. And medical journals confirm it and teach it. And so uh, we've committed all these sort of sins, I guess, things you say in the middle of conversation. Um, but there's a couple of things in there that we, 
we obviously tell you what to say on all these topics, but we tell you also what not to say. Yeah, that's helpful. I like that. I hadn't considered that before, but your argument that you don't have to have an impressive resume to be worthy of life. You're still created in God's image, no matter what you've achieved and what you can put on your CV. That That's excellent. What about this? Ar- Janet, yeah, Janet along those lines, along those lines, that works in gestation too, right? Yes. I mean, after conception, we're not mutual funds where we get more valuable over time. Yeah. <laughs> we're not we're not more excited for a mom at 20 weeks than we are at 18 weeks of her pregnancy. We're we're just excited, right? Yes. And so we don't we don't we don't gain dignity or gain value with time. Really good point. Now, going back to what you said a few minutes ago though, that when you're talking to these people who support abortion and they're just loud and weird about it increasingly because the science is working against them, and there's this tendency to go back to the but it's a woman's right argument. How do you deal with that one? That does seem to be a common one. What would be some suggestions for how to counter that? Yeah, that's just inconsistent with other things that those people usually believe, which is that we don't have rights over other people. Uh, we, we can't control other people. Uh, no woman has ever had an abortion on herself. Uh, she needs that independent baby. She needs to be pregnant in order to have an abortion. The abortion is not done on her, yep. done inside of her. Yep. But the target of it is not her. It's it's the unborn child who is living and growing, and and in this case, therefore, the problem. And so, uh, the the my body, my choice, the you know, you should have a right over your own body. Um, you do to a certain extent, um, but you don't have the right to control somebody else's body. And even in many of our laws, we really we don't completely have. You know, we can't do whatever we want with our bodies. We can't go streaking down the middle of the road or at a baseball game. Uh, we can't just walk into the gym of the, you know, Boston Red Sox and say, I'm a Boston Red Sox and I'm going to work out with you guys. Uh, they'll, they'll escort your body out. And so we do put, you know, natural limitations on what we can do uh, with our own bodies. But we certainly, and those people agree, we really restrict uh, removing the rights of other people's bodies, particularly the vulnerable and the helpless. Good. That's good. That's really good. So what about men? Because there, there are still some old feminists hanging on to this idea that men should have no say in whether or not a baby is aborted. And yet without a man, you can't have a baby. Where does that issue stand these days? Yeah, I mean, that that's, that is a, a golden opportunity for, for pro-life people. It's I wish men didn't have a say. Men's say has been the problem. Bingo. It was all men on the Supreme Court that gave us abortion. Uh, it is it is men who own most of the abortion facilities in America. Most abortion doctors are men, and men are also the ones uh, hardly ever to be found on the day of the abortion. Most women are alone or with one friend. And so it's not that men have sort of been shoved to the sidelines. It's that they've, they've sprinted there and bought condos. And the biggest winner of abortion, and this is, I think, the big scam that the feminists have unfortunately fallen for, the biggest winner in abortion are bad men, hmm. promiscuous men, irresponsible men, men that have no interest in taking care of a woman or her child, cowardly men who say, whatever you do, I'll support you and, and just sort of wipe their hands clean. Bad men are the winners. I mean, they, they, they benefit greatly 
if they if they if they want to from an abortion. They have zero responsibility. There is nothing more of a man's world than supporting abortion. That is a great point. It's hard to argue against that. And that's a really good thing to lay out for somebody who's trying to make that argument. What about using abortion doctors and abortion leaders own words with abortion supporters on what abortion is and why it's evil? How have you been able to leverage those quotes, for example, when you're dealing with pro-abortion supporters? Yeah, that was that was a late addition to the book, that chapter of in their own words. And, you know, when you have in conversations, we all have this, where you're just kind of not getting anywhere. And maybe we're the problem. We, all, we often are. Like, we're not articulating it right, or they don't like us, or we sound rude, or whatever. Some people just don't like certain people. Uh, getting yourself out of the way and just quoting abortion doctors who currently do abortions, not people who have converted and, and found Jesus, but which they're great too. <laughs> but the ones who are doing abortions today, their quotes are just undeniable. I mean, and there is a divide in the abortion industry. They don't really like the doctors running out there and talking about abortion. Uh, Planned Parenthood spends a lot of money just marketing abortion in a vague sense. But the the abortion doctors who do interviews, um, it is very powerful. There is no, there's nothing left to the imagination that they know they are killing a baby. Uh, they often feel very uncomfortable with it at best, but it's bloody and they have a right to do it. And some of them will talk about it is like playing God and it feels good. Um, so, you know, you're able to go in and in, in the book and just we highlight some of these quotes that you can share with people um, when you feel like you're not getting anywhere. Because somebody who is pro-choice can say, I don't believe abortion kills a baby. But the biggest advocate against that is a doctor who does abortions. Yep. Yep, you're right. And I'm looking at one of the notorious abortionists whom you quote in the book, Dr. Leroy Carhart. A lot of people will know his name. He's describing abortion here by saying it's like putting meat in a crock pot. OK, it doesn't get it doesn't get broke, but it just gets softer. I mean, you talk about a seared conscience and I would I would expect most abortion supporters could not read that and agree with it. Or you think of that woman in the the undercover Planned Parenthood videos, the executives in the baby body parts trafficking scandal. And the woman who said, oh, yeah, you know, I need the money. I need a Lamborghini. It, it's as if these people, I mean, how in the world could a normal person relate to this? It's just so evil and wicked. Well, in, 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 in the book, we put the 60 Minutes interview also with Carhartt, Ugh. Dr. Carhartt. And, and he says, you know, we take the baby and we, we describe the abortion to the baby. And the reporter <gasps> kind of backs up and is like, you're, you're saying baby. And he goes, well, I mean, it's a baby. And. The mother thinks it's a baby, and I'm, I know it's a baby. So, yeah, I say baby. Wow. <laughs> so wow. How often do we, how often do we kind of run around and think, I don't know, can we call it a baby? But it's uh, the, the abortion doctors, um, particularly he, he would be in the uh, uh, small category of being loud and proud. But the ones who have testified, the ones who have been quoted, um, it, it's, a, it's a lot of the same. And those are things that we need to share. You know, there are not medical students right now trying to be the best abortionists, but they are trying to be the best in all the other 
medical fields, and there's a reason for that. There is, and and it is encouraging to look at the number of abortuaries that have closed down over the last many years. That's been encouraging, but it's not so encouraging to see the increase in telemedicine. We still have challenges ahead of us, but I think this is just so great, Sean, because I know so many pro-lifers, and I know I've been active in the pro-life movement for many years, really do struggle with when I run into somebody who makes this argument, what do I say, and how should I address this particular issue, and I just want to reach people, not only with the love of God, but also with the truth about abortion. And this book is going to do a great job to help folks. What to say when the complete new guide to discussing abortion. Sean Carney from 40 Days for Life joining us. And so good to talk to you, Sean. God bless you. And thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work. Yeah, you too, Sean. Take care. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by a firm film, Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters September 10th. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, it's been very interesting to see some of the fallout over the disastrous Biden administration performance in Afghanistan. It just seems to be getting worse and worse. I don't know if you happen to hear that clip of that mom from one of the servicemen who was killed in Afghanistan in the last couple of days, just ranting about the president on this call-in radio show. And who can blame her? I just cried when I heard it. It was just absolutely agonizing to hear the pain in this mom's voice. And such is the case for all of these families. And here we have a situation with President Biden looking at his watch during a memorial service for these 13 U.S. service members killed in the ISIS-K suicide bombing near the Kabul airport last week. And now, you know, everything that you see Biden doing in videos, you always have somebody on his side of the aisle trying to explain it away. There was another video of him falling asleep while he's meeting with the new Israeli prime minister. Oh, no, he wasn't really sleeping. What? I'm looking at the video. His head is down. His eyes are closed. The prime minister is trying to speak and trying to engage, and he's out of it. And all I could think about was the left and how much they screamed and yelled about President Reagan one time falling asleep during a cabinet meeting. Oh, is he too old to be president? They don't care about it now. They don't care anything about it. So what's going on is just outrageous, and it just continues and continues. More and more criticism is mounting against Joe Biden for his lackluster is being too generous. It's not lackluster. It's absolutely impeachment inducing behavior on what went on in Afghanistan and the botched way that they are leaving Americans over there. We've got to pull out by August 31st, all the rest of it. Then you have this story from CNN. This is quite interesting, saying there are Afghan nationals now coming into the United States with no paperwork whatsoever. These people are Democrat operatives and they're reporting it. So what does that tell you? Well, stay tuned. We have 9-11 coming up, the anniversary, the 20th anniversary. And so let's turn to something else the left is doing, because there is no opportunity surrounding the commemoration of the greatest terrorist attack on the United States of America that a leftist will not step in and try to destroy. Again and again, I can't even remember how many times I have had to deal with 9-11 anniversaries in which some leftist was doing something so offensive 
that it you almost get numb to it, but I can't get numb to it because now we are all having terrorism on our minds in a renewed way. Funny how that happens when progressives occupy the White House, isn't it? And when progressives are in charge of Congress, all of a sudden we have a terrorism problem, don't we? Now we have an American administration that has been completely humiliated by a bunch of ninth century terrorists who are running a country. It's absolutely incredible. But this is a very interesting story. Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch writes about this at PJ Media. And this was originally a video. It's a story about a video that's come out from the Virginia Department of Education. Good old Virginia. God bless the Christians living there. It must be miserable. But Marina Medvin, an attorney and columnist, broke the story about this video. It is called Culturally Responsive and Inclusive 9-11 Commemoration detailing how Virginia public school teachers should handle the upcoming 20th anniversary of the jihad terrorist attacks that killed nearly 3,000 Americans on September 11, 2001. Now, the person they feature in this video is a hijab-wearing woman named Dr. Amara DeCure, who schools the, I guess you know, Islamophobe, potential Islamophobe crowd watching this webinar because she wants to make sure that you don't dare link Islam to 9-11 when you teach the kids about 9-11 on the 20th anniversary. You better not go there. So first she talks about what is in for the course of the webinar. Listen to this. This is crazy. This is cut one. So I'd like to also suggest that we have some ins and outs, some agreements as we get into this conversation, because teaching about 9-11 is difficult. Talking about 9-11 is also very challenging. So I'd like to suggest some things that are going to be in in this conversation today. We're going to extend an expectation of equity for all of our learners, all of our learners across the Commonwealth of Virginia and beyond. We're going to begin and end with an understanding that each of these students deserves to experience an equitable learning environment in their classroom. We're going to humanize our Muslim students. We're going to be talking about Muslim students in this conversation today. And so as we talk about them, we're going to focus on our common humanity with the Muslim students in our care. We're going to acknowledge the existence of anti-Muslim racism. It's going to be important as we begin to plan our 9-11 lessons in a way that does not seek to reproduce anti-Muslim racism. And because we are gathered together as a group of educators, let's come together with the spirit of seeking to learn and be in a learning community with one another. As I tell my students in class, you don't come to school seeking to show off what you know. You come to class seeking to learn and to gain information. So be in this community as a learner. Ask your questions in a spirit of wanting to know more and hope to seek and find the answers you are coming with. Oh, it's just agonizing to listen to this. How about you just teach the kids what happened and who did that to us on 9-11? Oh, no, 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 we can't do that. Here's what's out for the webinar. Cut to. So what's out? We are not going to reproduce a false assumption of Muslim responsibility for 9-11. We're just going to begin right there and name that there is no responsibility, and therefore we're not going to use this space to try and untangle that. We're also not going to use this space to reproduce anti-Muslim rhetoric. There's no time, place for that in our world, and there's not going to be a time or place for that in this space. We're also not going to use this space to get into an analysis of US foreign policy. There are other times, places, and opportunities for people to have that conversation, 
but not for today, not in this moment. And we're also not going to reproduce what's understood as American exceptionalism, this understanding that America is a land at the top of a beautiful mountain and that all other countries, nations, and people are less than America. We're not going to reproduce notions that American history and American experiences are more significant than the experiences or histories of other people. So we're going to begin with a common understanding of our shared humanity, regardless of our national, racial, linguistic, religious origins. At this point, she should be shown the door. Or at this point, every Christian parent in the state of Virginia should say, I'm taking my kids out of the Virginia public schools. This is so incredible. How can you claim there's a false assumption that there is Muslim responsibility for 9-11? Even Spencer points out that the five masterminds of the 9-11 plot wrote a lengthy communique calling the 9-11 attacks an act of jihad and saying the jihad in God's cause is a great duty in our religion. They called it an Islamic act. And also, when you look at the 9-11 Commission report, it mentions Islam over a thousand times and the word Muslim over a thousand times. But don't teach the kids that because they might actually learn the truth. One more cut is she talks about teaching the impacts of 9-11. This is cut three. So when you're teaching about 9-11, teach the 20 years that followed, not simply just the day of. So when we look at the 20 years of impact, there are many different things that we need to be teaching to our students. Let's talk about fear, because fear is a direct impact from 9-11. We had many phobias that stemmed from that day. There were people who were fearful of tall buildings, people who were fearful of planes, people who were fearful of being in large groups. But I would also want you to make visible the fear that people had of their personal safety, because as anti-Muslim racism spiked after 9-11, you had people who were Muslim and people who were perceived to be Muslim. Sikhs and Hindus who were fearful of their personal safety days, weeks, and even years after 9-11. In fact, on September the 15th in the state of Texas, Mr. Balbir Singh Sodhi, a Sikh American, lost his life because he was perceived as being Muslim and he was victim of an anti-Muslim attack stemming from 9-11 backlash. You can learn about his story also on StoryCorps. So when the standards of learning ask us to teach about the social conditions in the United States that stem from September 11th, teach a wide understanding of fear. Don't just leave it at one type of fear that stemmed from 9-11, but teach about the great complexity of fears. Unbelievable. 9-11 was a diabolical Islamic terrorist attack on the United States that left almost 3,000 of our countrymen dead, and it should be taught no other way. We're going to take a break. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. 
Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Aria lives in the Middle East in a radical Muslim family. She accepted the invitation of a Christian friend to attend a weekly Bible study and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She took her Bible study booklet home, hiding it in her room before her mother found it and gave it to her father. He severely beat young Aria and called the authorities to report her as an infidel. They took her to a remote cell where they assaulted her and the Christian friend before letting them go. These two women didn't grow bitter. They grew bold and together they've seen hundreds come to Christ in the Middle East, where Christians are urged to support new believers. You suddenly realize how critical it is for Christians not just to assume God will look after their brothers and sisters who have converted from Islam, but that they will be prepared to walk with them. Help send God's word to believers like Aria. One Bible is only $5, and a limited time match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YESWORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, this is interesting via Axios.com. Top Biden officials have been excused from the ethics rules President Biden boasts about so they can do work involving large Wall Street banks, a leading defense contractor and prominent national media outlets. That's according to records, which now show this. At least 16 Senate-confirmed officials have received waivers to ethics laws and regulations, according to a review that the website did of federal ethics paperwork. Who cares, right? Who cares about ethics? I mean, the guy's a plagiarist. Biden's a plagiarist. That's why he had to drop out of his previous bid to become the president of the United States, because he was shamed out of running for president. But these days, plagiarism's awesome. All you have to do if you're a plagiarist is just double down, ignore it, change the subject, get your friends in the media to cover for you, get the people who are surrounding you who have any semblance of power to cover for you. How in the world do you think Ed Litton is still in the ministry? Yes, I am going to go back to this. Ed Litton, the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and still a pastor with an actual church. I say actual church. I shouldn't really say actual church, but with a church in Alabama has been doubling down ever since it has been revealed that he is a serial plagiarist and has lifted all kinds of material verbatim in his sermons and doesn't write his own sermons and doesn't do all of his own research. And there are myriad videos you can watch online. We've played lots of excerpts of those interviews, I'm sorry, of those sermons that have been available online for the last several months. And he still remains and nobody calls him out except people who are faithful Christians who aren't important heads of seminaries or big elitist leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. So they don't count. All that counts to politicians who are dirty and all that counts to religious leaders who are dirty is whether or not enough screaming and yelling gets the momentum to force them out. I'm looking at you, Governor Cuomo, because that guy was sitting pretty until his own people demanded he resign, and now he's out. But he was sitting pretty and could have continued to sit pretty unless his own people had turned on him. 
which eventually happened. Now, why do I bring this up? Because Ed Litton, who doesn't like to do interviews with people who would actually ask him the tough questions and hold his feet to the fire, went on a podcast a few days ago and was actually asked about the fact that lots of people think that you're not even fit for the ministry anymore, Ed Litton, much less suited for the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention. And what do you say to this, Ed Litton? You're going to love this. Listen to this. Cut four. I understand why some people are concerned. I really do, because of what they're hearing. And uh, I, I just, and there's videos, and even people in my church, we, we've sat down and talked uh, about it. Uh, and there's publications, things being said. So the best way I can describe, uh, really, it's most of its centers, not all, but most of its centers around a Roman series that we did uh, last year. And when we were outlining the series, you know, that's a responsible part of pastoring and, and preaching is that if you're going to preach through something, you want to outline what you're going to cover each week. And uh, so I was looking to do that, and I was in the process of doing that. And I remembered that my friend JD had already done that. So I called him and I said, Can you send me a spreadsheet? He keeps his on a spreadsheet that, that shows me how you outlined it. I want to see how mine's lining up if I'm, if I'm approaching this right. And in that process, he gave me permission not only to do that, he said, any material at all, you're welcome to it. And I appreciated that. And and I had no intention of doing anything with it, except uh, I enjoy listening to him and I and I enjoy how he handles certain things in, in teaching. So I did listen to him. So uh, here's what I want to make it very clear. Like any pastor, uh, I used his material to help me outline it. And then I resources material after I'd done the Greek work, after I'd read my commentaries, try to get a sense of how this is this passage needs to be explained to my people. And, and there's a couple of places in particular where we share the same outline. And there's a couple of places in particular where I use a lot of phrases that he did. And, and I just want to say this. I'm, I want to be clear. I think the older you get, the more set you get in language. And you, you tend to rely on what you've used in the past. I've always been the guy who wants to always figure out, am I really connecting with people, my people? I want them to understand this. You're a plagiarist, sir. There's nothing you can say, no amount of babbling that you can do on a podcast that most people won't hear to try to explain away the fact that you ripped off somebody else's material. And I don't really care if you claim to do the Greek work. You stood up in front of your congregation and you preached material that wasn't yours and you did it word for word and you've done it for years and you're still sitting pretty because you don't have any Christian ethics and you act totally casual about it. You talk about it as if you tripped on your shoelaces. You know, I mean, normally I tie my shoe really well, but in this case, I mean, you know, I didn't really tie my shoe and so I tripped and, you know, I fell down the stairs and I cracked my head open and, you know, I mean, like that's not a moral failing clearly, but you would be a little bit more animated, wouldn't you? If you fell down the stairs and cracked your head open because you didn't properly tie your shoes, you'd probably have a little bit more enthusiasm for the topic. And this goes, oh, well, you know, I just want to make it totally clear. I mean, I totally use Greer's outline and yeah, I mean, people, I can understand why people are concerned. No, people are concerned if you have a fever. They're not concerned if you are an unethical pastor. It's just incredible, the minimization of the seriousness of what this guy did and the fact that he has the gall to stay in that position. It's incredible, but you're going to get a little insight from this cut I'm about to play where he explains why he did what he did. And boy, this is rich. This is cut five. 
I didn't do this. What I did, what it appears that I did, I don't think is exactly what actually I did. But 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 the point is, when I when I did it, I wasn't trying to make a name for myself. Uh, I was trying to help my people understand Scripture. And I'll be honest with you, Romans is an intimidating book for me. Now, you guys are a lot smarter than I am. It's probably not as intimidating for you, but it was. So I I did rely on that. Here's the problem: I had permission, which I think means it's not plagiarism. The problem was I didn't, and it's it's obvious that I did not tell my people exactly the source that it came from. I didn't cite the commentaries I read either. And and so uh, that's what I have I have apologized to my people. They have very warmly accepted that. Uh, our leadership and I have sat down and we've talked about how we can correct this. And we're in the process of correcting it. I'm fasting from certain things I've always done in preaching and uh, approaching every every message I preach, whether it's at the convention or at a location or in our own church, I'm approaching it differently. And uh, and so this is, I take this very seriously. And this is what I share with my people. Every week, you have trusted me for 27 years to be a man of truth. And, uh, and so I have to tell you the truth. And if you can't trust me, then I have no basis of leadership in this church. Wow, that's some good gaslighting you got going on there, Ed Litton. You know what he's really saying there? When he says... I have to tell you the truth, and if you can't trust me, meaning his church, then I have no basis of leadership in this church. What he's basically saying is, if my church doesn't care about it, nobody else should either. Do you note this? There's no objective standard to which Ed Litton is pointing in order to determine whether or not his ethical breach was such that he must resign from the ministry. He didn't deal with 1 Timothy 3. He didn't deal with Titus chapter 1. He didn't talk about the fact that he's no longer above reproach. And that is one of the key elements of character that is required of a man in the ministry. He doesn't even deal with it. As long as my church doesn't care, why do you guys even care? Oh, we take it very seriously. You take it so seriously, then resign. Resign. If you take it seriously, that's how we'll know you're taking it seriously. It's so dishonest and it's so sleazy. It's Clinton-esque. It's Biden-esque. It's the exact same thing in the church that we're seeing in the world. Oh, you know, all these people, sure, they're dying in Afghanistan. But you know what? I don't want a forever war, so I'm just going to... Right. So all these people saying you should be impeached, Biden. Oh, no, 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 no. It's crazy. I found a great quote, by the way. And it was actually in Walter Kaiser Jr.'s Toward an Exegetical Theology. Listen to this. It's from John Albert Bengel, a Lutheran pietist clergyman who was born in 1687. Listen to this. Scripture is the foundation of the church. The church is the guardian of Scripture. When the church is in strong health, the light of Scripture shines bright. When the church is sick, Scripture is corroded by neglect. And thus it happens that the outward form of Scripture and that of the church usually seem to exhibit simultaneously either health or else sickness. And as a rule, the way in which Scripture is being treated is in exact correspondence with the condition of the church. Look at how the president of the Southern Baptist Convention is treating scripture. And that's how you will know why the condition of the church is what it is. That will explain all of his elitist friends who refuse to hold his feet to the fire, who are on the record as saying plagiarism is a terrible thing and a disqualifying sin and ethical breach, but they won't apply it to their buddy. It's a direct result of the sickness of the church because scripture has been corroded in the minds of these men and in so much of the church. We must bow down to the Lord and be under the authority of his inerrant word. And if we're not, God help us. Ed Litton, 
you need to resign. This Hour of Janet Mefford today is brought to you by a firm film, Show Me the Father, from the Kendrick Brothers. The creators of War Room and Courageous explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters September 10th. God bless you, and we'll see you next time.